Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Dr. Greg Bonson entitled, The Glory and Humiliation of the Christmas Story. Listen to more from Dr. Bonson now on Canon Plus. The Christmas season and this week and next, I'd like to take the opportunity to bring to you a, a couple of messages that are intended to complement each other, two parts to one glorious story. And this morning we consider the first of those messages, the humiliation of the Christmas story. Next week we'll be looking at the glory of the Christmas story. But this morning we begin by looking at the humiliation of the story of Christmas as told to us in the scriptures. So turn with me please to Luke, the second chapter, where this morning I'd like to read for you the first 20 verses. Well-known Christmas story. Luke chapter 2 at the first verse. Hear now God's word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went up to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And thus far the reading of God's word. I'm going to do something which I do not um, like to do often when I'm preaching to you. I'd like to read from another book now, not at all the word of God, but something which I think will be illuminating as we consider 
the text that we've had before us and the theme of the humiliation of the Christmas story. I'd like to read a little essay that was once written by C.S. Lewis. It's entitled Xmas and Christmas, a lost chapter from Herodotus. And in order for you to understand the um, humor and the, and the scholarship that lies behind this little essay, you need to know that Herodotus is credited as being the first historian. He was a Greek. He wrote about the history of many cultures. And the style in which Herodotus wrote was one of um, uh, a travelogue, a kind of wonder as a person goes to another area of the world and finds the following customs and the following kind of people. Imagine, I, this is what Lewis is saying, just imagine what it would be like if someone in the style of Herodotus were to come to us at this season of the year and have to describe our culture. And it's entitled Xmas and Christmas. One thing you will not be able to enjoy, as I will as I read, is that um, Lewis does exactly what a person who is traveling to our country would do when he writes this up. He speaks of Xmas and he spells it E-X-M-A-S. Because that's what he hears, Xmas. And, of course, he spells Christmas, C-H-R-I-S-S-M-A-S. This is Christmas. And so you don't see the Christ mass part of it and all that. It's just the kind of impression you'd get visually and verbally if you came to our country. All right. And he begins. And, of course, C.S. Lewis, one more note of introduction, writes from England. Okay, he's writing in the, in, from the standpoint of the British Isles, and so the opening paragraph is describing England, and if you're not aware of that, you might be a little lost. A lost chapter from Herodotus. And beyond this, there lies in the ocean, turned towards the west and north, the island of Niatribe, which Hecteus indeed declares to be the same size and shape as Sicily. But it is larger, though in calling it triangular, a man would not miss the mark. It is densely inhabited by men who wear clothes not very different from the other barbarians who occupy the northern western parts of Europe, though they do not agree with them in language. These islanders, surpassing all the men of whom we know in patience and endurance, use the following customs. In the middle of winter, when frogs and rains most abound, they have a great festival which they call Xmas, and for fifty days they prepare for it in the fashion I shall describe. First of all, every citizen is obliged to send to each of his friends and relations a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Xmas card. But the pictures represent birds sitting on branches, or trees with a dark green prickly leaf, or else men in such garments as the Nyat Herbians believed that their ancestors wore 200 years ago, riding in coaches such as their ancestors used, or houses with snow on their roofs. And the Nyatyrians were unwilling to say what these pictures have to do with the festival, guarding, as I suppose, some sacred mystery. And because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with the crowd of those buying them, so that there is great labor and weariness. But having bought as many as they suppose to be sufficient, they return to their houses and find there the like cards which others have sent to them. And when they find cards from any to whom they also have sent cards, they throw them away and give thanks to the gods that their labor at least is over for another year. But when they find cards from any to whom they have not sent, then they beat their breast and wail and utter curses against the sender. 
And having sufficiently lamented their misfortune, they put on their boots again and go out into the fog and rain and buy a card for him also. And let this account suffice about Xmas cards. They also send gifts to one another, suffering the same things about the gifts as about the cards, or even worse. For every citizen has to guess the value of the gift which every friend will send to him, so that he may send one of equal value, whether he can afford it or not. And they buy as gifts for one another such things as no man ever bought for himself. For the sellers, meaning the merchants, for the sellers, understanding the custom, put forth all kinds of trumpery and whatever, being useless and ridiculous. They have been unable to sell throughout the year. They now sell as an Xmas gift. And though the Nyaturbians profess themselves to lack sufficient necessary things, such as metal, leather, wood, and paper, yet an incredible quantity of these things is wasted every year, being made into gifts. But during these fifty days, the oldest, poorest, and most miserable of the citizens put on false beards and red robes and walk about the marketplace, being disguised, in my opinion, as Kronos, that is the god of time uh, in Greek mythology, being disguised, in my opinion, as Kronos, and the sellers of gifts, no less than the purchasers, become pale and weary because of the crowds and the fog, so that any man who came into a Nyatribian city at this season would think some great public calamity had fallen on Nyaturb. These 50 days of preparation is called in their barbarian speech the Xmas Rush. But when the day of the festival comes, then most of the citizens, being exhausted with the rush, lie in bed till noon. But in the evening they eat five times as much supper as on other days, and crowning themselves with crowns of paper, they become intoxicated. And on the day after Xmas they are very grave, being internally disordered by the supper and the drinking, and reckoning how much they have spent on gifts and on the wine. For wine is so dear among the Nyaturbians that a man must swallow the worth of a talent before he is well intoxicated. Such, then, are their customs about the Xmas. But the few among the Nyaturbians have also a festival, separate and to themselves, called Christmas, which is on the same day as Xmas. And those who keep Christmas doing the opposite to the majority of the Nyaturbians rise early on that day with shining faces and go before sunrise to certain temples where they partake of a sacred feast. And in most of the temples they set out images of a fair woman with a newborn child on her knees and certain animals and shepherds adoring the child. Uh, parenthetically, the reason of these images is given in a certain sacred story, which I know but do not repeat. But I myself conversed with a priest in one of these temples and asked him why they kept Christmas on the same day as Xmas, for it appeared to me inconvenient. But the priest replied, It is not lawful, O stranger, for us to change the date of Christmas. But would that Zeus would put it into the minds of the Nyaturbians to keep Xmas at some other time, or not to keep it at all. For Xmas and the rush distract the minds even of the few from sacred things. And we indeed are glad that men should make merry at Christmas, but in Xmas there is no merriment left. And when I asked him why they endured the rush, he replied, It is, O stranger, a racket, using, as I suppose, the words of some oracle, 
and speaking unintelligibly to me, for a racket is an instrument which the barbarians use in a game called tennis. But what Hecteus says, that Xmas and Christmas are the same, is not credible. So this is, Herodotus had this style. He would say, some other writer has told you this, but I have not found it to be true. So he says, what Hecteus says, that Xmas and Christmas are the same, is not credible. For first, the pictures which are stamped on the Xmas cards have nothing to do with the sacred story which the priests tell about Christmas. And secondly, the most part of the Nyaturbians, not believing the religion of the few, nevertheless send the gifts and cards and participate in the rush and drink wearing paper caps. But it is not likely that men, even being barbarians, should suffer so many and great things in honor of a god they do not believe in. And now enough about Nyaturb. This was published one Christmas season in England. You can imagine, well, of course, the uneducated in England wouldn't have understood it anyway. But those who had any reason to um, understand what Lewis was getting at would be asking the question, which I want to ask you this morning. Why do those who have no faith in the deity and the saving worth of Jesus Christ make merry at this time of year called Christmas or, as it's popular, the holiday season? Why is it that those who do not believe the Christmas story continue to celebrate the holidays, the holy days? Why do they even call it Christmas? Now, Lewis, of course, tongue-in-cheek, says, well, of course, Xmas and Christmas must be different because men would never make merry on a day in celebration of a God they don't believe in, or would they? News stories and television specials at this time of year tend to gravitate toward little editorial or sermonic paragraphs on the true meaning of Christmas. I'm going to tell you something. I'm getting sick of hearing about the true meaning of Christmas. Last night, we happened to have on, just for noise, uh, some television special, and I had already uh, gathered my thoughts for today's message, and lo and behold, toward the end of it, we have some television star coming forth and telling us about the true meaning of Christmas. You see, just when you might think a closet commitment to the divine Son of God, our Savior, is about to be revealed, because this is the true meaning of Christmas, you find that unbelievers have, as a matter of fact, their own unbelieving perception of the true meaning of Christmas. And so we have created for us the ironic situation that people are insisting on the true meaning of Christmas at just the point that they don't know the truth. The true meaning of Christmas. What is the true meaning of Christmas for those whom I will now call humanists, not Christ? those who worship the human spirit, those who say that man is the measure of all things, those who say that human value is the highest value, that human authority is the highest authority, those who put man at the center of their worldview instead of God. What is the meaning of Christmas, or shall we call it Xmas after the Lewis essay? What is the meaning, the true meaning of Christmas? For a humanist. Well, I think that the true meaning of Christmas for a humanist is ironically enough found in the Bible. In a verse which is poorly translated in the King James Version at Luke chapter 2, verse 14. In our scripture reading this morning, you will notice 
in the translation I use, which is the New International Version, Luke 2.14, the song of the angels is translated, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. In the King James Version, however, you will know the, the words, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth and goodwill to men. And the reason for that um, mistranslation has a little bit to do with ancient manuscripts and a whole lot to do with the translation of an awkward Greek expression, which is universally understood by Greek scholars to mean um, uh, goodwill to those who have been favored, uh, parenthetically, by God. Those on whom his favor rests, as my translation puts it. But let's go back to the King James which, of course, has informed our English language and customs for so many years, men have heard repeatedly from childhood and on that the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth and goodwill to men. Now there, I think, formally speaking, in empty verbal symbols, is the meaning, the true meaning of Christmas for the humanist. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And having those words in hand, somewhat like empty bottles, perhaps, the humanist world now proceeds to fill those bottles, those words, with their own imaginations, their own philosophies, their own perspectives on what peace is and what goodwill is. And usually, this comes down to meaning, although the variations are interesting, but usually it comes down to meaning. The true meaning of Christmas is this, no war on the international scene and kindness to our fellow men, especially those in need. Am I right? Isn't that the true meaning of Christmas, as you read about it in the paper, hear about it on newscasts, and of course see it in Christmas specials? Peace on earth, meaning no warfare, all the nations you see are going to lay down their weapons, and goodwill to men, meaning we have a neighborly warmth and, and nice feeling, a kindness toward one another. That's the true meaning of the humanist Christmas. Now, having established that or introduced that thought, what I want to ask you is, but how do the details about the birth of Christ fit into the true meaning of the humanist Christmas? Why is it that making this, having made this, the meaning of Christmas for them, humanists continue to tell the story of a baby born in Bethlehem? It surprises me in a way which perhaps um, didn't surprise Lewis that people don't uh, hesitate to go and tell the Bethlehem story, even though they have no intention of telling the meaning of Christmas from a theistic and Christian standpoint. That is to say, having made the meaning of Christmas, let's be peaceful and kind toward one another, we tell some apparently irrelevant story about a mother having a baby. Now, why? Where Lewis thought that was, you know, perhaps mind-boggling, I don't. I don't mean to say that I have some kind of insider intelligence Lewis lacked by any means. But I do think that if you stop and reflect on it, you can see very easily why the story about the baby Jesus in the manger fits right into the humanist true meaning of Christmas. It might seem we could have the true meaning of Christmas without Christ or his birth story at all, 
but actually for historical and psychological cultural reasons that I won't explore now. The humanist approach to Christmas continues to remember and reflect upon the details of the birth of Jesus, and it does so primarily for illustrative purposes. It does so because here's a great illustration of the need for that message. The reason we keep telling this story over and over again, even though we have no belief in the deity of this person, or the saving message that is about him. We continue to tell the details because this shows how unkind men can be and what a lack of peace the world now has. You see, for illustrative purposes, the story about Jesus and his birth continues to tell the humanist meaning of Christmas. The biblical account of the birth of Jesus provides a message. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, against the backdrop, don't you see, against the backdrop of events which illustrate the very opposite, which illustrate anything but peaceful conditions and neighborly kindness. Humanists continue to tell this story because it shows us how the true meaning of Christmas, which of course is the false meaning of Christmas, but what they call the true meaning of Christmas is sorely needed in our world. It is for humanists the very sorry conditions under which Jesus was born that naturally leads into the call for a better world, that naturally leads to a call for peace and goodwill toward men. And thus, this morning I want us to look at the humiliation of the Christmas story. And there are plenty of humiliating details to consider. First, this morning, I want you to look at the oppressive political circumstances that are detailed for us in this story. We know, of course, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But now let's start adding to this. Let's put some, some detail, some substance to this story. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? After all, his parents lived in Nazareth. Well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem because Joseph, his presumed father, was forced to go to Bethlehem by a political decree. I want you to think about that. Think about oppression here. Some politician told Joseph that he had to get up and go to Bethlehem. Joseph didn't do that just because he thought he'd go home for a visit. He didn't do that because it was time for a vacation. He didn't do that because he was out on a business call. Joseph went to Bethlehem because he was forced to go to Bethlehem. He was compelled by political decree to do it. Now, how many of us like to be told what to do by earthly dictators? None of us do. We enjoy our freedom. And so don't you see how we need peace on earth and goodwill toward men? Poor Joseph is forced out of his home to go away. But you know, it's more insulting than that. The oppressive political circumstances aren't simply that Joseph went because somebody told him he had to, but he went because the decree was a decree of taxation. How many of us like to pay our taxes? Not any of us. Taxation is one of the, of course, most uh, hated forms or instruments of political rule. We don't like to pay our taxes. And how would you like it if you were Joseph? Not only do you have to get up and go somewhere you don't want to go necessarily, but the reason you have to go is so that you can register, be enrolled, to be taxed. You see how oppressive the political situation was 
in that day, and how much there was a need for peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But you know, there's a third step in the humiliation of this oppressive political situation. The third step is not just that a politician told Joseph to go do something, not just that he told him to do it for the sake of taxes, but it was a foreign government that told him. It was bad enough, of course, that any government would dictate his actions. But you see, it's an emperor way across the sea in Rome who decides he wants to tax the Roman world that forces Herod and Quirinius and the other local leaders to bring people to their family homes to be enrolled for the taxation. Joseph has to suffer the indignity of going to Bethlehem against his wishes for the sake of paying taxes to a foreign overlord. Now do you see the true meaning of Christmas? We need peace on earth. We need goodwill toward men, not oppressive political circumstances. But if you consider that, consider secondly, as well, the embarrassing social setting. Not only were there oppressive political circumstances, there was a very embarrassing social setting here. Because you'll notice that Mary went with Joseph to Bethlehem. Why would a woman nine months pregnant go on a trip like this? And sometimes we know a story so well that we don't know it very well at all. Many of you have been told the Christmas story over and over and over again, but have you ever thought about the historical realities, the details? Why did Mary go with Joseph? He could have gone and signed up the family in Bethlehem. And I want to suggest to you, though I admit it is somewhat reading between the lines, but not much. I want to suggest to you that Mary went with him because Joseph did not want her to suffer the indignity of gossip. After all, Joseph had married her despite the fact that she was pregnant before the marriage, before the wedding. Joseph was that kind of fellow. There aren't a lot of them in this, in this world, as you know. Most uh, fiancés would be humiliated by this, and they would be infuriated by it, and they would have left her. But Joseph for reasons which, of course, the Bible explains to us. But from the standpoint of those who have not heard what the angels said, Joseph is just some kind of soft-hearted guy who doesn't want to see Mary left out there by herself with this baby. And so he goes through with the wedding. I mean, how credible would it be to you? How credible would it be to you if one of your neighbors... Let's say a 19-year-old, apparently nice young woman, were pregnant and not married. And then the explanation comes to you, kind of whispered, it's a miracle. She hasn't had relations with anybody. And you probably roll your eyes and say, uh-huh. That right. And Joseph's going to be a nice enough guy and kind of relieve a little bit of the social Embarrassment. He's going to marry her anyway. Uh huh. Well, if it began that way, can you imagine what it would have been like if he had been away from home and she gave birth? What people would be saying? What she'd have to go through? You see how unkind we can be? So what you have here is a very common story of a woman pregnant out of wedlock. And it's a story of kindness and the need for peace among people. 
You see how the humanist true meaning of Christmas can be illustrated here? These embarrassing social there is an oppressive political circumstance, an embarrassing social setting, and thirdly, consider the physical hardship that this story tells us. Terrible physical hardship. You know, the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was 90 miles. 90, to make it clear to you, walking miles. Not 90 miles by train. Not 90 miles on a Greyhound bus. Not 90 miles on a nice quick flight from LAX. 90 walking miles for a pregnant woman. About a three-day trip at a pretty good clip, by the way. 30 miles a day. It's a nice, you know, portion of ground to cover. And Mary had to do that while she was pregnant. So the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem is a matter of physical hardship. And Mary was so far along in her pregnancy that upon arriving in Bethlehem, the Bible says she went into labor and had her child. And look at how she had her child. Look at the humiliation of this. Deprived of the normal comforts at such a time. She wasn't at home. She didn't have help from her family. She didn't even have ready availability of supplies. And she had to have a baby. And she was lonely. The Bible tells us she herself wrapped the baby in swaddling cloths. Very unusual. In that day and age, a woman would have some kind of attendant, a midwife or a sister or a mother, somebody who would help her, and the attendant would wrap the baby. But Mary not only has to take care of her own physical condition at the time of the birth, but she now has to take care of the child and wrap the child and tend to it as well immediately. But of course, the most well-known detail of the whole story is yet to be mentioned if we're going to mention physical hardship, and that's, as Luke and Matthew both tell us, there was no room made for her at the inn of Bethlehem. No room at the inn. Boy, if ever there was a, an illustration of how unkind we can be, it's to not give up your room, your own bed, for a pregnant woman who is in labor, Paul thinks. The inn was crowded, probably crowded because so many people had come for the enrollment like Joseph, and there was no room there. And the innkeeper, either unwilling to disturb his guests or having disturbed them and getting no response, cannot provide a room for Joseph and Mary. And so you notice the insensitivity of people in this world, don't you? Can you believe the cruelty of somebody who would not let a pregnant woman have his room or her room? And there's no room in human society for Jesus. And so Joseph turns to the habitation of animals to a cave or to a stable, a rough stable of some sort. And the baby Jesus, when he's born, doesn't have a crib. He must be laid in a feed trough, in a manger. And so now, you see how this illustrates the need for peace on earth and goodwill toward men? Of course I can understand why the humanists tell this story. It shows us what a bad lot of people we are. It shows us how insensitive and unkind we can be. It shows us our need to love one another and to care for those who are in greater need than we ourselves. Of course, there's also a story about very lowly people here. Who is it that comes to give praise because Jesus is born? It's shepherds. You know, and that has a nice sounding ring to those of us who know this story and have told it from childhood. 
But in that day and age, it didn't. Shepherds came to him. Shepherds represented the poor among the people. Shepherds represented the smelly among the people. I mean, that's not just a contemporary phenomenon. That sort of thing is 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 classic in literature about the way people ridiculed the smell of shepherds. And shepherds were so despised in Palestine that they were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law. I mean, these are the people who are just, you know, overwhelmed by the coming of Jesus. People who are smelly and poor and despised. The outcast of society, in a sense. And so we see our need for goodwill toward men and peace on earth. But there's one more part of the story that isn't in the Luke passage that we read, but we do read about it in Matthew's Gospel as he gives the account of Jesus' birth, and that's the persecution and danger of this day. For when Herod the Great heard that a king had been born, he suspected a coming revolution. And like a madman, then he sought to kill the child, and in order to make sure that the child would be killed, he slaughtered all infants, all infant males, up to two years old in Bethlehem. Talk about political oppression. Talk about madmen. Talk about persecution. Matthew describes this as the wailing of Rachel for her children at Ramah. Terrible story. Mary and Joseph were forced to flee to Egypt and probably had to finance the trip to Egypt with the original gifts brought by the Magi. And so here we have the true meaning of Christmas illustrated, or the need for the true meaning of Christmas, so very well illustrated. The need for peace on earth and goodwill toward men. I don't disagree that these are bad circumstances, but I want to tell you this morning before we close, others have had similar bad circumstances. Others have had to contend with political oppression, with embarrassing social settings, physical hardship, with lowly people to be their friends, and with persecution and danger. Others have had to contend with it. And pardon me, I do not mean to sound at all disrespectful, but I want to tell you that, in fact, some people have had it far worse. We pretend, we make a myth out of the story if we think this is as bad as anybody's ever seen it. How would you like to have given birth as a woman on one of the trains to Auschwitz? I know Mary had it bad, but believe me, people have had it worse. And talk about persecution, yes, Herod killed so many infants up to two years of age. Do I have to remind you of some of the details just of the 20th century about the slaughter of infants, the slaughter of races of people, the indignity people have had to suffer in concentration camps, the political oppression under which they live? Now, I'm telling you, if the humanist is looking for an illustration of the need for the humanist idea of peace on earth and goodwill toward men, the only reason to tell us the details of the Christmas story, just because it's convenient, just because it's been told so often, just because we can expect people to identify with it, because it doesn't show us by any means the worst of political oppressions, the worst of physical hardships, the worst of social embarrassments that people have, to gone, have gone through. It doesn't show us the greatest lack of peace on earth or the greatest need for goodwill toward men. 
Well, then what is the humiliation of the Christmas story? Because I believe it is a humiliating story. The humiliation of the Christmas story is better told to us, I think, in the words of our catechism, which as an aside, I want to remind you, all of you should be getting to know much better. It's a shame that we don't know our catechism because there's a lot of very good theology in it. And question 47 of our Westminster Larger Catechism says, How did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? Here's the humiliation of Christ in the Christmas story. And the answer is, Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth, in that being from all eternity the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her, with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. Yes, he was abased in the circumstances of his birth, but the humiliation of the Christmas story is that the one who was the Son of God from all eternity was pleased to become the Son of Man. Second Corinthians 8-9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You see the humiliation here of Jesus? How he had all the wealth of deity, all the splendor and the glory of the Godhead, how he had all the privileges and the comforts of heaven, how he sovereignly ruled over heaven and earth, how he created all things, how he knew the glory of the tulip and the rose and all those things, how he directed every minute detail of history from his throne on high, how he received eternally the antiphonal song of the angels of heaven, and how in the midst of all that, in the midst of that divine wealth, he became poor utterly poor, that we might become rich through his poverty. That's the humiliation of Christmas. And not only did he give up his divine privilege and glory in heaven, Romans 8, 3 tells us, for what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. You would think if God were to come into this world, if God were to give up his privileges of the throne and the glory of the angels and the direction of creation to come in this world, he would come with a glorious body. He would come with resplendent majesty. He would come in such a way that everyone would have to respect his place. But Paul says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful man. He took on a human body. I don't know if you have any conception. I don't know if we can have any genuine conception and appreciation of what that must mean for God to take on a human body. I was thinking for a while as I was preparing for this message this morning that it might be likened to what it would be for us to have to take on the form of a cockroach, a despicable cockroach that accomplishes nothing good as far as I know in this world. They're parasites. They're ugly. And Jesus took on the form of a human being. But you know, as I thought about it, that's still far too flattering to think that we were to become a cockroach. Because 
Because cockroach is just part of our order of creation anyway. The cockroach may not be a very pleasant thing, but the difference between the cockroach and us is in one sense a difference of degree. Where the difference between God and man is one of categorical difference. Jesus took on our form and our sinful form. A form that is subject to having colds and getting hungry and being tired and being bound and beaten and dying. That's the humiliation of Christmas. Not that he was born in a stable, but that it was God who was born. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8 puts it very well, it seems to me. Well-known incarnational hymn. Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see how Paul begins, he says, this one that I'm talking about, he didn't have to grasp after deity. He was by very nature God. He didn't need to come climbing up some kind of a a chain of being or strive through some Mormon theology to finally get to the position of a God. He was God from all eternity. No one could take that away from him. And I want to remind you, and especially the children here today, Do not think that when we talk about God becoming man, we mean that he stopped being God and became something different than God. We mean God added to himself human nature so that now he is God and man, the God-man. God did not become man by ceasing to be God. He became man by taking on the form of a servant. And Paul says, this one who was in very nature God, who did not have to grasp after equality with God, made himself nothing. The Hebrew expression, which I think is uh, taken from Isaiah 53, is to pour himself out. He just poured himself out. He gave himself over completely to the task of redemption, so that he took on the form of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearances of a man, humbled himself even further to dying, and if that isn't enough, dying the death of a common criminal. That's why Paul, when he talks about humility, when he wants to get the point across that we should be humble toward one another, says, have this mind in yourselves that was in Jesus Christ, who, being the very form of God, went through that. You see, the humility, the humiliation of the Christmas story, that God became man. In John 17, 5, Jesus prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus was conscious of the great difference, the great distance between his present estate and that which he had before. And he prayed to God that he would be glorified again now, and he'd receive again that glory that he enjoyed from all eternity with the Father. Galatians 4.4 tells us, But when the fullness of time was come, 
God sent forth his son, sent forth from his position of glory, sent forth from his comforts, sent forth from his privileges, sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. The problem with the humanist true meaning of Christmas is that it's not true enough. Yes, the Christmas story is one of humiliation, but humanists don't know humiliation because they don't believe in a God who condescends to become man. The humiliation of the Christmas story is not the indignity of the circumstances, but rather the incarnation to which God had to stoop. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are quieted before you as we stand back in hushed amazement that the creator of heaven and earth, the all-glorious, majestic, sovereign God, should stoop to the point of taking on our form, should humiliate himself and become a man in abject circumstances. Lord, we thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. He went through things which he did not need to go through. He went through things which no one should have to suffer. He went through things which no necessity could be placed upon God to go through. And yet he went through them for us. This morning we wish nothing more but to have that attitude in ourselves which we have seen displayed in our Savior Jesus Christ. That we would be willing to humble ourselves, especially before you. To bow before you and to thank you that you once bowed to us by sending a Savior in the form of man. Lord, we thank you this morning for your humiliation. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture reading this morning is, as it was last Lord's Day, taken from Luke, the second chapter, verses 1 to 20. Please turn with me then in your Bibles to the New Testament, Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, where we begin reading at the first verse. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And thus far the reading of God's word. Last week, we take up the question of the humiliation of the Christmas story, the well-known Christmas story, and I ask you to consider what the meaning, the true meaning of Christmas is from the standpoint of the secular world, from the standpoint of humanist thought. And we notice that humanist really sees upon the words of the King James Version of Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the message of the angel which is perhaps not as accurately translated as it might be. For there we read, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill to men. Humanists think that that is basically the meaning of Christmas. And if that is the meaning of Christmas, if we're supposed to be good to one another, have a neighborly attitude and seek world peace, why do we tell the story about a little baby who was born in a stable somewhere and laid in a manger? And what I suggested to you last week was that humanists continue to tell that story, even though they don't believe in the deity of Christ. They continue to tell that story because it illustrates so well the need for peace on earth and goodwill to men. It shows us the terrible, terrible and humiliating circumstances under which this child was born, the political oppression, the social ostracism, the physical deprivation. It shows us all these terrible things and so illustrates the need for the humanist meaning of Christmas. And then we notice at the very end, however, that humanists have not found the true humiliation of this story. For the true humiliation of this story is that God stooped to become a man. That Jesus, though he had all the glory of the Father and dwelt with unapproachable glory from all eternity, nevertheless left his throne of glory and became a man and became a mere baby, and died a criminal's death for the sake of us. Well, that's the humiliation of the Christmas story, but we like to think of the glory of the Christmas story. And so this morning I want to ask about the glory of the Christmas story. What is it all about? Where do we find glory in this story? What is the glory of Christmas? The answer is all around you. What is the glory of Christmas? It begins, well, it used to begin the weekend of Thanksgiving, didn't it? It has begun earlier than that now for many years, 
we see the glory and the glorification of the Christmas story and the Christmas decorations that go up shortly after Halloween now, sometime in the month of November. The merchants understand the glory of the Christmas story, don't they? In fact, I commented a few times to members of my family how wonderful it was to see the merchants love Jesus so much that they have their stores open longer hours at this time of the year. Uh, that obviously indicates that they uh, care for the Lord so much. The glory of the Christmas story. We know the children understand the glory of the Christmas story, even if you don't get my drift. What is the glory of Christmas for a child? Now, we have taught our children, and they dutifully say from time to time, that it's not really presents that they're interested in. They're happy that Jesus was born. And I think that uh, child's profession of faith is an important one. I don't want to minimize it. But you know how difficult it is for a child to say that, to say it without some lingering sense of hypocrisy, to say it truly and fully. It's difficult for us to say it, isn't it? Is there anybody here who doesn't enjoy receiving a gift? The glory of Christmas is all these wonderful things that are given. The glory of Christmas is giving presents. Ask anybody out in the world. They know that. They know that's what the Christmas season is all about. That's why the merchants start so early. That's why they keep their stores open so late. That's why the decorations are up for so long. It's to encourage us to buy presents and to give to one another. That's what children glory in. That's why all this week, if you've read your papers, you've seen every day some story about somebody knowing the true meaning of Christmas because they took presents to children who wouldn't have them. That's the meaning of Christmas. Or so the world would tell us. Well, this week I want to reverse direction with you and tell you that in this particular case, the world got it right. That is the glory of Christmas, giving. And I'd like you to see that as we consider the text before us. You know, people often have real difficulty with Christian theology, with what Christianity propounds. For what the Bible asks men to believe is often a stumbling block, a stumbling block to many. They find faith hard. Just consider the atonement. Really, how can men believe that one man who was executed upon a Roman cross put away the sins of the world? How can you believe that one man's death could possibly have that kind of significance? Why should there be that kind of theological importance to the death of one good man? Or how can an ancient fact of history about a man dying on a cross have any bearing on my relationship to God today? That's something that took place years ago. It may illustrate something. It may have been important in its time. But how can it affect my day-to-day -day ongoing relationship with God today? Or consider the resurrection. How can we expect modern men to believe such a thing? It may be one thing during the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, when people's minds were filled with superstitions anyway. Maybe one thing for them to believe in a resurrection. But we know that dead bodies don't come back to life. We've all been to funerals. We all know the, the terrible, depressing truth about death. You know, it'd be a lot easier for men to believe, wouldn't it, that the disciples just stole the body or that he never really died. And just kind of revived there in the tomb. It'd be a lot easier to believe those things. And even if you can believe 
that the body was dead and came back to life, how can you possibly believe that he emerged from the tomb with unending bodily life in a glorified state? It's one thing for a body to come back to life, but to come back to life in a glorified state, in a state that will never die. Consider the miracles of Christ. If you really believe that Jesus walked on water, that he walked on water, I mean, healing people, we might be able to accept that. We know there's psychosomatic problems and there are faith healers throughout history, that sort of thing. But walking on water, feeding 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, can we really believe that he raised people from the dead and read men's minds? You see, questions like these pose real intellectual problems for people. And because of questions like these, minds are deeply perplexed about the Christian viewpoint. How can we believe all these things? There's real problems with Christian theology. However, in our tremendous book written by J.I. Packer, entitled Knowing God, the author says, in fact, the real difficulty because the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us does not lie here at all. It lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man, was as truly and fully divine as he was human. Packer says, the problem with Christian, there are many problems with Christian theology. Many things that stagger the mind. Many things that make faith difficult for modern men. But the real difficulty is not found in any of those things we've been talking about, having to do with atonement or resurrection or miracles. The real difficulty has to do with the Christmas story. Has to do with the message of incarnation, that God became man. You see, there's the real stumbling block to Jews. There is the real stumbling block to Muslims. There is the real stumbling block to Unitarians and to Jehovah's Witnesses. And in fact, it's the stumbling block to all of those of a rationalistic, autonomous mindset in philosophy, in their view of life, that God should become man. It's because of a lack of acceptance of this point in Christian theology that people have problems elsewhere with what we have already listed. It's because of the Christmas story that people stumble at Christianity. You see, if Jesus were no more than a remarkable man, compassionate and good, effective as a teacher, perhaps the best of the Hebrew prophets, if he was in his very being, no more than what can be said of us, no more than what can be said of any normal human being, then the difficulties one experiences in believing the biblical account of his miracles, the difficulties we have in believing his atoning death and victorious resurrection are insurmountable. If the Christmas story is wrong, then all the rest is wrong too. You see, without the incarnation, without Jesus being God-made man, Christian faith must come to grief. Christian theology and the weight of the biblical story balance delicately upon that crucial point that Jesus was more than a man, more than a good man, more than an exemplary man, 
more than a supremely religious man, more than even an angel of God. Christian theology loses its internal credibility. It loses its coherence. It loses its power. If Jesus is not seen as God's son in human flesh, But once the Christmas story and the doctrine of incarnation are affirmed by the mind and believed from the heart, then almost instantly every other difficulty with Christian theology dissolves. It just fades into the air. In his book entitled Miracles, C.S. Lewis has a chapter entitled The Grand Miracle, and it begins with these words. The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends on their relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. You know, he's absolutely right. If Jesus was very God of very God, as Athanasius put it, then there should be no problem whatsoever in accepting his miracles. No problem at all in accepting his atoning death. No problem at all in accepting his resurrection to unending life. You see, if Jesus is the one who created the heavens and the earth and all of their intricacies and all of their physical laws, then there should be little wonder that he could multiply loaves, that he could walk on water. He made the water. That Jesus was the one who called out Abraham and gave him a promise. If he's the one who made Moses his spokesman to deliver the Hebrews, if he's the one who instituted the temple service and the atoning sacrifices, if he's the one who promised David a messianic deliverer who would know victory despite rejection, if he's the one who inspired Isaiah to write about the suffering servant of the Lord, then it's not at all incredible that his death should have momentous and saving significance. If Jesus is the one who gave life to all of creation, if he's the one who inspired the prophets and Moses, if he's the one who told of his resurrection, it's little wonder that the God-man should rise from the dead. Indeed, if he's God the Son, it would have been far more startling if he'd remained dead and not risen from the grave. Once you accept the Christmas story, all the rest falls into place. All the rest, though it's miraculous, though it may be incomprehensible to the human mind, all the rest is but little difficulty. Once we grant that Jesus was the Son of God in human flesh, it becomes unreasonable to find fault with the rest of the mysteries of Christian theology. You see how it all comes down to this point? This is the glory of the Christmas story. The incarnation is the central piece to the Bible's message. The glory of the Christmas story is the heart of Christian theology. It's contained briefly in that wonderful name that Isaiah said would be given to the Messiah and which Matthew was eager to repeat in telling the story of Messiah's birth. It's all found in that one name, Emmanuel, which is Hebrew, meaning God with us the glory of the Christmas story, and the central plank in the Christian message. Christian theology means nothing without it. Without it, every other piece of 
truth that the non, that the Christian presents to the non-Christian becomes totally unacceptable. And so you see the glory of the Christmas story? God is with us. But I want you to think a little bit further, because though it may seem we have come to some important conclusion here, the true glory of this Christmas glory has yet to be seen. What is the true glory of this glorious message that God has become man? The mystery of the incarnation was expressed well in the words of the Athanasian Creed. Listen to this. Athanasius wrote, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, perfect God and perfect man, who, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. Very well worded theology. Precise, faithful, true to the scripture. God did not cease being God and transform himself into another kind of being, namely man. But rather, God took into his very being manhood. He united to himself a human nature. And so Jesus is the God-man, not two Jesuses, not two Christ, not two persons, one person with two natures, fully God and fully man. Oh, there's a great mystery there. And as Packer would say, we actually get two mysteries for the price of one, because in Jesus Christ, we see not only the uniting of God and man, the incarnation, but we see the truth of the Trinity, that God has three persons. Jesus The Son of God is fully God and fully man. You know, we could easily be tempted to seek in this truth of the Incarnation the wondrous and the glorious depth of the miracle involved. We may be tempted to look at that and to think about the question, how could the infinite creator become a finite human creature? It's a great miracle there. Or we could be tempted to search for a better understanding of the miracle of how a virgin could conceive. Our thoughts could readily be distracted into contemplating the philosophical and the psychological and the physiological dimensions of the incomprehensible, glorious miracle that took place when God was in flesh, when God became incarnate in Christ. But as wondrous and as marvelous as that truth in its miraculous dimensions is, we'd still be missing the true glory of the glory of the Christmas story. And so I return to Packer, where he tells us in his book, writing about the biblical message of the Incarnation, the taking of manhood by the Son is set before us in a way which shows us how we should set it before ourselves and ever view it, not simply as a marvel of nature, but rather as a wonder of grace. Listen to those words again. Not simply as a marvel of nature, but rather as a wonder of grace. Let me put it to you another way. The glory of the Christmas story is not so much its reflection upon the power of the Creator, displaying His control over all natural laws and created property, but rather its revelation of the faithful love of the Redeemer. The glory of the Christmas story could easily be thought to be the power of the Creator and doing something very miraculous, making a virgin of a baby. Having that baby be God and man together. 
we might think God's ability to manipulate this created order and to do these wondrous, powerful, almighty things is what's glorious about this story. What a wonder he has done, and certainly he has. But that still doesn't come to the glory of the story, because the glory of the story is not the power of the Creator. It's the love of the Redeemer. That God, with all his omnipotence, should be able to make a virgin woman conceive a son, and that the all-powerful Creator should manage to unite human nature to divine, that's not really all that surprising. God has all power. Of course he can make a virgin have a baby. Of course he can use creation and even the body of, a, of, of this child to be united to divinity, that he'd be the God-man. Being omnipotent, such ability can be taken for granted. What cannot be taken for granted is that God should exercise his almighty power in this fashion for the sake of salvation. The incarnation, you see, is much more than a marvel of nature. The wonder of it is God's grace. Look at the glory sung by the angels. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2 that the glory of the Lord shone round about them when the angels came. And that's what terrified them. For God had shown forth, he had manifested his glory. And as it shone through to the angels and lit up the whole area round about, it put the shepherds in fear. And they should have been in fear because you know what the glory of God means? The glory of God means that we're exposed, that our sin is showing, that our dark hearts are seen for what they are. The glory of God means his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and his truth. It means when God arises that we must be smitten. It means that when God rises up, those who have been at war with him must suffer defeat. When the glory of God comes, that means the shame of man must be destroyed. And so the Bible says they were sore afraid to use the King James. They were terrified because God's glory was shining round about them. And the first word from the angels is, don't be afraid. We have good news. Good news. And at the end of the story, verse 20 says, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. What is it that the shepherds heard? What is the glory of this story? The glory of this story is found in the identity of the baby born at Bethlehem. Right there in verse 11, the angel says, Today in the town of David, someone's been born. Who? Babies are born all the time. The glory of the story is who that baby was. For who has been born? A Savior. Who is the Messiah? The Lord. Look at all three of those titles. Savior. He has come not to rise up in judgment on you, but to come to save you from your sins. The Messiah, the one that you've been looking for ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin. From the very beginning, the promises of God have centered on this one the anointed one of God. As Paul could say, however so many be the promises of God, they are yes and amen in Christ. All of God's promises in the Old Testament, all of God's redemptive dealing in the Old Testament, everything he did with the Hebrews was looking forward to this one called the Messiah. And he will be your Lord, not just your judge, your Lord. 
And so the identity of the one born at Bethlehem is so important. And then the multitude of heavenly hosts come and they sing glory to God in the highest. But why? Why the glory of this story? Why should God in the highest be given a hymn of praise? What is it that brings about this overwhelming song of adoration to the Most High God? What is the glory that attaches to God because of this event? And the answer is right there in what is so often mistranslated. The answer is, on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. The glory of the Christmas story is not a wonder of nature, the incarnation, but that the incarnation should be exercised for our salvation. It's a wonder of grace. On earth, there is peace to men on whom God's favor rests. There is peace where there should be alienation, where there should be opposition, where there should be judgment and distress. The angel says, no, I have good news. Peace. God has a message of peace for those who are at war with him. God is reconciled to man. And this peace is on earth. It's a present reality. It's part of human experience. It's not in some remote, disembodied realm. It's not apple pie in the sky by and by. It's not if you hope and believe the pure in heart can possibly see it. It's peace on earth with concrete consequences and results. Something that's part of your life now. Peace now on earth. And this present experience of saving peace is for men on whom God's favor rests. It's a message of grace, a message of God favoring man with salvation. It's a message of God giving a gift which none of us deserves. The glory of the Christmas story is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. Think about that. God so loved the world. Arminians, to be very brief about this, don't understand John 3.16. John is not saying God so loved, meaning it was so broad a love, that it encompassed the world, meaning the scope of all creation and all mankind. God so loved the world. No, it is not the breadth of God's love. It's the depth of God's love that John's talking about, that God so loved the world. The realm of rebellion, the realm of sin, the realm of rejection of his claims. That God loves the angels is understandable. That God should love the created inanimate world is understandable. That God should love the animals is understandable. But that he loves the sinful fallen world. He so loves that he gives. It's a measure of love. You understand that in your own experience? If you understand it in your experience, you must understand then the significance of what John's telling us. Love means giving. God so loved the world that he gave. And you know what he gave? His one and only son. He didn't have another one to give. His unique son. You see here something far greater than Abraham willing to sacrifice the son of promise because God told him. Because you see, Abraham's son is restored to him and a ram in the thicket dies. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
God gives and gives and gives. There's the glory of Christmas. The merchants understand it. Oh, they've perverted it. Oh, they've misapplied it. And children, in their own way, understand the glory of Christmas, though they may not put it in its proper context. But this morning, I want you to know that the glory of Christmas is giving, because God gave. I was asked recently, why do we give gifts at Christmas? Is it because the wise men gave gifts to Jesus as a baby? Well, that's a credible hypothesis, but it's not correct. No, we don't give gifts at Christmas because the wise men gave gifts to Jesus. We give gifts at Christmas because we want to reflect the attitude of our Heavenly Father, who gave gifts to us. No, he gave a gift to us, the supreme gift, his only son. Let's pray. Lord, help us to feel the true glory of this day that we celebrate today. The glory that you love us, though we are sinful and unclean, though we are rebellious against you, we transgress your law, we are unfaithful, and there is nothing good in us that you still give us gifts, that you love us, that you care for us, and above all, you are faithful to fulfill your promises to send a Messiah, a Savior, our very Lord, so that we might be made right with you. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. How we thank you for the glory of that gift. For we pray in his name. enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out more from Dr. Greg Bonson, available on Canon+. Plus.